Smart class begins in Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And the 13th, the first 13 verses of this chapter are, in my estimation, extremely important because it is, it shows the dynamics of faith. Now, we know the dynamics of dynamite, how it can blow up and destroy, break of pieces. We know the dynamics of uh, gasoline. It'll move a big truck down the road and up the hills. And this morning we're going to look at the dynamics of faith. What can faith do? What has it done? That's the idea. So, in our previous lesson, last week, we saw the writers spend considerable time building confidence in faith. Uh, he showed us the, what we call the heroes of faith. Men who endured and, and turned their back upon a lot of things because of their faith in Christ. Moses, for example, turned his back upon all that Egypt had to offer him as being the son of the daughter of a king. And she found him in the river, uh, floating there in a basket, and she adopted him, as it were, as her son. And so Moses had access to everything, all of the wealth and, and pomp and everything that Egypt had to offer. And you remember he was one that was suggested as one of the heroes of faith because he turned his back upon the pleasures of sin for a season to suffer with the people of God. And so the last chapter of, or that we studied, chapter 11, uh, was uh, the writer was working on these Hebrews to give them confidence and faith. And now he wants to make sure in this chapter uh, he makes the application of the dynamics of faith through which men of age, ages past accomplish great things for God. These men also endured great uh, things because of their faith. The contemporary generation of Christians seem to be uh, so urgently in need of faith. Uh, so he gives considerable attention, the writer does, uh, to faith. And so here he's going to deal with the dynamics of faith. And of course, that's, this is granted the times are, are uh, stressful. But that is when faith shines more beautifully, when times are stressful, when life gets very tedious. That's when our faith shines the brightest among men and before God. So there is without doubt the greatest example of faith that needs to be presented, and that is of Christ. Look at his faith. Uh, 
He stands apart in his expression of faith in God and in man. And he is unique as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's found in verse 2 of this chapter. Remember that his generation is under the very shadow of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it's going to be a very tedious time for a lot of these Jews. As Jesus had foretold them in Matthew 24 about that destruction, uh, this would be a time of travail for them. And so the writer, knowing this, is concerned about the survival of his readers. He wants them to stand firm. He wants them to recognize the choices that Noah and Moses made and what they were moved uh, by, by the fear of God, by the fear of failing. Uh, and so both physically and uh, particularly spiritually, uh, the writer's concerned about the survival of his readers. And so that's why he goes into depth about faith and about the dynamics of faith. If you think about the word dynamics, it comes from the word dunamos in the Greek, which means uh, power. Uh, we get our word dynamite from it. Uh, and also... Uh, these, what's the name of these things in these dams that produces electricity? Generators. Generators. They're what? Generator. Generators are... Uh, uh, dynamos. Dynamos, that's what us, yeah. And so the attention is given to faith. And the writer will show them how faith acts under stress and persecution. And that's where faith counts. That's where it shines its most beautiful, is in the trials of life. Faith also leans on God. This is the message he wants to present and impress on the minds of his readers. You need to learn how to depend on God. We don't fully depend on God. We like to think we do, but we don't. Because when trouble comes uh, in our community or when, uh, uh, well, like uh, the troubles we're having politically and things right now, how many really depend upon God to take care of the problem? He is in charge, we know, of the governments. He's running the governments. They're not running themselves. They have some free choices to make, but if they make the wrong ones, God is in there to defend us to protect us, take care of because he died to purchase the church. Don't you know his love is going to demand his uh, oversight over us? And so we worry unduly, but we need to learn how to depend on God. <clears throat> Through external circumstances, though they may give an impression that God has abandoned us, or that we are left prey in the hands of ex, uh, external uh, of the enemy. It's also true that even when others hurt us, there can be divine purpose that can be accomplished for the man who has faith. And so we lean upon God. We trust in God. And we know that whatever happens to us, even though it may be cruel, 
even though it may be uh, very uh, unwanted, still in all, we know that God has a purpose in it for us, doesn't he? Or he wouldn't allow it. Uh, that's Romans 8. And what is it? Verse uh, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Didn't say all things are good. It just said all things work together for our good. And so if you uh, believe God has that ability to do that, uh, then you lean upon God very heavy and you trust in God. And you know that regardless of what happens, let's just invent something real quick. Suppose the Russians come over or the Chinese and take over our government. What's our stand in that? Our stand is to follow the example of Jesus. When he told the Jews about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, did he tell them to go get weapons and get ready to fight and practice and, and train to become soldiers to fight against the government? No, he said to flee, didn't he? What's the man of God going to do when trouble comes? He's going to step out of the way. The majority of this world will fight the troubles of this world, which are not, doesn't matter, doesn't mean anything. So you win the battle, and you win freedom, as, as men call it in governments. What have you won? A temporary, limited freedom for a few years. And then you're right back into the same trouble again. That's the history of man. And so our great generals that fight these wars, our great armies with all of their expertise and all of their weaponry, they fight and they bring about a temporary peace that lasts maybe one half of a generation. So as we follow Christ, do you ever read anywhere where Christ talked to the Christian about uh, getting armed and ready for war with the Romans? No, he said, when you see the city compassed about by the Romans, flee for your life, run for your life. And that's what the Christian does. When trouble starts over in, a, in Portland or Seattle, are we the kind of people that should run to those things? No, we flee from them. The ungodly is the majority of this world. Jesus said that. White as a gate, broad as a way, and many enter therein. Let them fight these battles, because this world, this kingdom down here, is theirs. They're building it with their ungodliness, and God's allowing it to a point because it has purpose in it. But this is their kingdom. What did Jesus tell Pilate? Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? He said, thou sayest, that's true. But he explained, my kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight. And so maybe that gives us some index as to our outlook on war and our part in war. We have no part in it. We're to love our fellow men. We're to pray for our enemies. Not use bullets on them. Our warfare is spiritual. It's spiritual. It's not carnal. All right, so uh, 
And the writer has closed out Hebrews chapter 11 by giving a long list of great men in faith. He showed how they stood firm, how they did not bend or yield in the face of persecution, opposition, or even death. And he closed out in verse 39 by saying that these all were uh, commended by God for their faith. And yet they did not receive the promise, promises. Some of the promises of which he is speaking uh, relates to the coming of the new messianic age in that time and frame. And they died before uh, that age arrived. But they died in faith. They believed in God. They accepted God's plan in part. Didn't fully understand it. Even the prophets searched diligently. 1 Peter, 10, 1 Peter 1 verse 10. They looked diligently uh, to try to understand the things they prophesied about. <clears throat> he told us... Uh, that God had promised Christians better things. The Hebrew writer did. And then he explained that only together with us would they be made perfect. That was the close of chapter 11. The us are Christians and they, in that context, are Old Testament men and women of faith. They could not be perfected in their relationship with God without our being made perfect also. Because see, Christ hadn't come yet at that time. In the time frame he's talking about, the Old Testament heroes of faith, they were not made complete without us. Because when did Christ come? So all the way through the Old Testament, they looked to God for faith, by faith. And they believed in him. And he had promised a seed of woman that would destroy the serpent's head. And they believed it. And they lived uh, obedient to that cause. And so that does not mean that their salvation depends on us. Just because uh, they didn't uh, uh, receive and were made perfect without us. Because Christ is a source of salvation for them and for us. And so when the writer's talking about the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, Christ hadn't come yet. And so their completion would be when Christ came. And when we had opportunity for salvation as well as them through the blood of Christ. But without him, neither, uh, neither we nor they could be made perfect before God. But with his sacrifice and priestly ministrations available, both we and they can be perfected. And that's the idea of the last verse in chapter 11. He who gives us perfection can and does also bring perfection to those great people of faith from ages past. Our common salvation has its roots in a common source, which is Jesus Christ. And so that's what that last statement said. Only together with us would they be made perfect. 
in the last verse of chapter 11. All right, let's begin with verse 1 here of this chapter. Therefore, now we know what therefore is. Therefore always goes before, after the bear, before. Uh, it's a conclusion. And so he's showed us the heroes of faith, how they stood firm even in the face of death. And now he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us throw off uh, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily uh, entangles. And let us run with patience, perseverance, the race marked out for us. So the cloud of many witnesses is those men from Old Testament times who gave us such evidence of faith in God in the face of persecution and perseverance and all that they went through. Uh, they should, like us, uh, they showed like us a cloud, or they shrouded us like a cloud of witnesses. They are not witnesses or spectators of the way we run our race. That's not the idea. But they stand as witnesses in the fidelity of God. We can trust God. That's the point. And therefore, to the uh, uh, utility of faith in Him, we are spectators of the way they ran their race in life. Uh, for the record of their success is written down on sacred pages of the Old Testament for us to observe. And incidentally, did God ever abandon his people in the Old Testament? Never once. He seen to their needs, didn't he? When they rebelled against him and rebelled and rebelled and got so wicked in the days of Jeremiah, what did God do? Did he abandon them? Did he wash his hands of them and walk away? No, he said, I'm going to take you off into the valley of trouble for an attitude adjustment as he spoke of Babylon's captivity. And it'll be your only door of hope. I've tried everything else. I've tried to talk to you by the prophets and you killed everyone I sent to you. I've done everything I can do. The last thing I can do is take you into captivity for an attitude adjustment. They was there 70 years. And so <clears throat> uh, these heroes of faith, their witness confirms the validity of trusting in God regardless of the price one has to pay in this life. I can trust God. Did Jesus trust God when he was crucifying him? Did he endure death in trusting God? <clears throat> well, the writer says in verse 1, throw off everything that hinders now you got to stop and kind of get out a notebook and make a list of the things that hinders. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? In other words, the writer's calling on the reader here to stop and think of what throws him off. Or, or excuse me, the things that causes him to abandon his faith and walk away. The things that causes him to neglect the <coughs> gathering together on Sunday morning and on Wednesday and in the Bible studies and things. What is it that hinders us? 
We need to consider that. So throw off everything that hinders. Uh, that would be attachments of any kind that pull one away from Christ. And the devil's good about bringing these opportunities to pull you away from Christ. He don't like you coming and learning about uh, Christ. He don't like that at all. <coughs> he would rather you stay at home and watch gun smoke or uh, something like that, or go to a ball game, or go fishing on Sunday. It could be uh, family relationships that are need to be thrown off. Some of these relationships with family, because they get overbearing sometimes, don't they? And they get demanding. And families are like the government. They like to plan things on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday night. They like that. Because the devil's behind it, didn't he? All right, so he works through our family relationships. and uh, So it could be family relationships or even family inheritance. And we've already studied here in Hebrews how that <clears throat> There's a lot of Hebrews who lost their inheritance because they uh, embraced Christianity and obeyed the gospel. And I told you of one fellow that I met whose family had officially uh, announced to him um, in front of the whole family that they no longer existed anymore. His father told him that. As far as we're concerned, we do not exist anymore. You're not our son. You're not heir to anything. And so, there was a tendency for these Hebrews to maybe want to go back and, and please Father and rejoin the Jewish religion to get their inheritance. And so, throwing off everything that hinders in a lot of cases might have been throwing off the inheritance. Uh, of course, this is the middle voice uh, verb in the Greek. And as such, it demands that each person act upon himself in the removal of all the impediments to, ser to service to Christ. So this is a problem that you have personally. You've got to throw off these things. You can't expect your wife to you can't expect your husband to. You can't expect somebody great to do this. This is your job to throw off those things that hinder. <clears throat> he says in verse 1, uh, the sin that so easily entangles. Now that's what we're to throw off is those things that hinder and easily entangle us. Um, now, if they easily entangle you, probably there's some sin or some act that you've uh, become accustomed to because we're creatures of habit, aren't we? You take a man that starts cussing, and years later he obeys the gospel. He is so prone to cuss, it's just natural for him. He don't even think about it. And he has to consider those kind of things and begin to throw them off, don't he? Anything that would draw him away or hinder him. 
in other words, the sin that so easily entangles, uh, would seem to insist from the context that it regards uh, a lack of faith. Unbelief is a sinful condition because God has given adequate evidence to confirm every word he has ever given. Has God confirmed in the Old Testament every word that he's given? Absolutely. He's done it in history, hasn't he? He's done it in a progressive, minute by minute, hour by hour, week by week, year by year, a century by century in a time-space dimension we call history and God has established uh, his credibility. Uh, he's confirmed you and I uh, his fidelity. He can be trusted. So when God, when faith begins to fade from the actions by which it manifests itself automatically being in uh, begin to disappear from one's life. Remember, faith is evidence. And when the evidence is lacking, the faith is not faith. So what's faith? Faith is the evidence of our actions. Does faith have actions? Yeah. You can't believe God just as a... Well, like I believe that there's a sun out there that warms the day. <coughs> That's just a fact that I believe. It calls and compels me not to, to uh, do anything about it in view of it. But salvation is expressed by our faith in action. And that's what he's already showed him in chapter 11. We run our race as saved people, not in order to produce our salvation. We run it as saved. We already wear the helmet of salvation. It's not that we're running to gain that helmet. We've already got it. We've got the security. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. That is a confidence we have. That is an assurance that we have as we live our daily lives. I'm no good, never will be any good. But with Christ, His Spirit, His admonitions, His teachings that, that I allow to be fed into my intellect up here is what makes any good in me. It's what causes any good out of me. If I do good to my neighbor, it's not me that's doing it. It's the Spirit of my Lord that taught me, that persuaded me. It's not me. Me left to my devices would be very ugly. Uh, we run our race and save people, not in order to produce our salvation. Christ uh, produced our redemption. Remember Ephesians 2 verse uh, 11? We are His workmanship. He done the work. We didn't. Our salvation is a result of what he done, not what we do. So we need to get we and what we do out of the way. Obviously, we do run for survival. But we're like Christian soldiers in Ephesians chapter 6. 
he fights with a helmet of salvation on his head. He's not therefore fighting to be saved, but as one that is already saved. So Christians, uh, they, they run. And if our salvation depends on our running, then God pity the lame. If our salvation depends on how our running, then we, we got to pity the lame man that can't run. Our salvation, we wear the helmet of salvation. We, we already have it. Actually, man's faith is a response to the fidelity of God. The writer said that he who promised is faithful in chapter 10, verse 23. And even in the negative, uh, he confirmed the same by saying, God is not unfaithful to forget your works of love. That's chapter 6, verse 10. <clears throat> so God's fidelity and righteousness stimulates our response to him through faith. We've read the Old Testament. We see the heroes of faith. We see their life and how God worked in them and how God protected them and cared for them and nurtured them and gave them opportunities to uh, declare their faith. And so those men of faith of ages past witnessed to God's fidelity to them and their faithful response to Him. And the writer uses them as a stimuli in order to encourage his readers. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. <coughs> All right, throughout the New Testament, there's ample uh, declarations that Jesus is our example that we follow. So every time I come up against a problem, who do I look to for advice? Jesus. What did he do? As I mentioned earlier this morning, when we see Jesus talking to the Jews and telling them about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 that hadn't come yet but was close at hand, did he tell them to fight? No. Does that tell us anything? We're kind of up against a, a situation like they were, weren't they, against the Romans. We don't fight for these carnal things. And so Jesus said, don't fight, but flee. Get out of the way. Don't go down to Portland thinking you're going to bullheadedly go down and stand for some cause and get up and holler through a megaphone or whatever and tell everybody what you think. That's futile. That's temporary. That's of this world. And somebody's going to throw a tomato at you if they don't throw a grenade. You're to stay out of that kind of stuff. Peter said that the world thinks it's strange that you and I don't run to the rioting like they do. Boy, they hear about trouble in Portland, and all the little bullies run out. I'm going to go down there, look at my t-shirt, see what it says? Bull on you. 
see this other one? Look at the sign I'm carrying. They're wanting trouble. They're making trouble. They're causing trouble. We're not into those kind of things. We trust the fidelity of God to take care of us, don't we? You believe he's running this world? If you do, then you can relax a little bit and, and you can step out of the way of trouble when it comes. Because our job is not, uh, what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus is our example. He started out here in verse 2, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> so let's look at verse 2 here a little bit. I want to read it out of this uh, this translation. It's a little... I like it a little better than the King James. Nothing wrong with the King James. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the admonition is to put our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is a great example of faith uh, himself because he lived faithful to God. Repeatedly, he challenged the Jews to look at his life and he said, I do always the things that please my Father. So his fidelity was never uh, one time uh, compromised by any personal interests that would jeopardize his relationship with God. He, we let some of the most stupid things interfere with our relationship and our worship to God. We do. When you analyze what pulls us away sometimes, it's ridiculous how, how, how simple they are. How, how stupid they are to pull us away. But we allow it. And so he is a great example of faith, but he is the one that also originated faith. The Greek word archeon, which is translated pioneer there in that verse, he's a pioneer of our faith, uh, that could easily be translated conductor or the leader of our faith. And the word perfecter there in that verse, he's the pioneer and the perfecter, it suggests that he is the one that is conducting his faithful subjects toward the glorious heritage he has prepared for them. And so do we have help along the way? Yes, we do. When we walk with Christ, there's a help there that uh, is seen in one sense and is not seen in another. We don't know what goes on altogether in our behalf behind the curtain of life. But we do know, as one scripture teaches us, uh, that God will not allow us to be tempted above that which we're able to bear, but will, with the temptation, give a way of escape. Uh, how does he do that? How many times has he done that in my life? I don't know. He does his work on the other side of that curtain. 
and he's assured me of his fidelity in that work. But I don't need to know all the details, do I? I just need to trust God. I need to know that this world is his, not mine, not man's. These braggers out here, these presidents and these great generals and rulers of this world, they're temporary. They go to the same grave we go to eventually. And so I'm not to let them have any real bearing on my faith. My faith's in God. This is his world and he'll do what he sees necessary. So Jesus is presented as the one who went before into heaven for us. He's the pioneer that went before. That's chapter 6, verse 20. There he is called in the Greek, uh, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-O-S, Perdomonos, however that's pronounced, which means a forerunner. So he's went where we're going, and he went as a forerunner. So Jesus stimulates our faith by his own example and through his role as the one who uh, begins and finishes our faith. And so he's the one that got our attention and began our faith. And he's the one that ends it. He'll finish it. Uh, as another translation puts this verse, faith does... Uh, does have its convictions out of the demonstration of God's fidelity. And so Jesus does author our faith. He originates it by giving the evidence that he is indeed the Son of God, and every claim that he made about himself is literally true. He is the author of our faith. He is the terminator of it. He is the one that began it, and he's the one that will conducted to its logical conclusion. The logical conclusion being heaven itself. <clears throat> and incidentally, that's why John said that he wrote his gospel in John 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, truly, many other signs did Jesus and the presence of his disciples. It's not written in his book. But these are written, the ones in the gospel of John. And many others he done that John didn't write about. But he said, these particular ones in my writing are written to the intent that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so he presents the evidence that Jesus was divine. His divinity covered death, evil spirits, the devil himself, uh, quality, quantity, uh, diseases. He showed himself divine in every respect, didn't he? And so we don't follow something. We don't follow a man but named Christ just because uh, it sounds good to us. There's proof there that's established in history. Time, space, dimension called history. It's undeniable. The devil don't even try to deny it because he knows it'd be futile, be stupid. 
So the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the supreme example and goal of all faith. Keep looking at Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, a scorning his shame. So if we keep our eyes on Jesus as our example, again, if we have questions about whether it's right to go to war or not, we go and see what Jesus done, don't we? You know, he told Peter there in the garden, he said, put up your sword. Uh, how can we fulfill the will of God if we fight? He said, if I wanted to fight, he said, I have legions of angels at my disposal. You realize how dangerous one angel is? He can do whatever God tells him to do. On one occasion, God told him to go down and kill 185,000 troops in one night. And I'm assuming it took him probably the matter of a coffee break to do that. And that's when in 720-something, uh, uh, when uh, Sennacherib had finished with the 10 tribes, he came down and uh, uh, took all of Judah except Jerusalem went down and took Egypt and on his way back he was he seen that he missed Jerusalem and that's when his armies made the mistake of surrounding Jerusalem scared the dickens out of Hezekiah the king but God said well get a good night's sleep Hezekiah don't worry about it this is my battle you and I need to learn what God's battle is in this world he rules these kingdoms we don't have that to worry about that is not to be an interference with you and me. What Biden does up there may aggravate me, but in the overview of everything, I'm to say, well, so what? This world's ruled by the ungodly anyway. I mean, they're, de they're destroying it. They're the ones that, that God allows to rule. He has a purpose in it, showing us the stupidity of man so that we can turn our attention to God and his wisdom. And so I don't need to worry about these things, and that's what God told Hezekiah. He said, they won't fire one arrow inside my city. Because you remember when Sennacherib come to the city of Jerusalem, he was pretty bold and brassy, wasn't he? And in essence, he just told him, in the morning after eggs and bacon, a good night's rest, a good breakfast, we're going to snatch you out of that city like a bird in a cage. And he could have. And God told his guy, don't worry about that. This is my battle. Because this is my city. I built it. I established it. I bought it with blood. And ain't nobody going to destroy it. Man does not have the power to destroy the church. The Lord, when he set out to build his church in Matthew 16, 18, he said, upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You believe him? Well, then why, why do we worry? And so when trouble comes to communities like Portland or Seattle or Chicago, we're not there. We step aside from trouble, don't we? <laughs> We'd like to help them people, but until they become the man of Romans 7 that has a meltdown, and cries out, O oh, wretched man that I am. There is no help for them. They've got to see their own inability. 
And they got to see their own malady of being wrapped up in sin. Till they see that, uh, you're you're just spitting up a rope, really, to try to think that you can save them. You're not going to save anybody. The Lord's going to allow the pressures of life to bring them people to grips with who they are and what they are and what they need. They need a, a counselor. They need a director. They need a savior. <coughs> and until they become the man of Romans 7, there's no hope for them. I know you've got relatives that you pine away wishing that they'd obey the gospel. They're not going to until they become the man of Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And until they get that attitude, you can lay 10 million words out of the Bible on them. It ain't going to do any good. It ain't going to do any good. Because like we've studied in times past, and Sunday, Wednesday night, Paul said that there's some things that are spiritually discerned. They're made known by the Spirit. And they're not interested in the Spirit. They're not interested in Bible study as it were. Spirit speaks through these words. And they're not interested in them. How are you going to save them? What hope do they have? The only hope they have is when God turns the heat up in their little lives and causes them to wet down their pant leg and realize what kind of a world they're in. A world, a dead world. And until they see that, there's no hope for them. I don't care if they are your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. I don't care who they are. <coughs> there are rules governing getting man's attention to where he's willing to obey the gospel. And that comes through a man like is described in Romans 7. And so it's not up to your expertise with words to convince this person to obey the gospel. It's not upon your uh, going out and forcing them to listen to you and knocking doors and getting in people's way and causing trouble. No. As Peter said, you just be ready to give answer to every man that asks you. And not very many asking, are they? And that breaks her heart. I don't like to see that. I never meet a man what I don't uh, am not anxious for him to ask, but they don't ask. Very few ask. Because there's very few men in Romans 7. And that's what the Lord said. Wide is the gate and broad is the way and many enter that road of destruction. But on the other hand, very narrow and straight life does the road that leads to eternal life and few to be to find it. There'll be few in your life that'll ask you, what must I do to be saved? Like the Ethiopian eunuch, like the Philippian jailer, and like many others. But sometimes we get it in our head that, oh, we can bully this thing, we can push this thing. With our expertise of words, we can save the world. No, no, no. And the Lord done told you the world with its mindset is going to hate you. So there are some things that are spiritually discerned or made known. And that's what we're learning on Wednesday night in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, isn't it? Exactly. 
to be a, a most of the world don't know that. I, I, I know of a lot of preachers that hasn't learned that lesson. Some of them come up here every year, you know, and we love them dearly. But they're out to convince the world because of their expertise. Some of them have been to college and they trust in their education and their uh, choice of words in persuasion. That's not where it's at. It's in the broken man who recognizes that he's a worn out man of Romans 7 under law. And he's looking for salvation. What must I do to be saved? Oh, being you're asking, let me tell you. But Peter says, be ready always to give answer to every man that asks you of the hope that lies within you. We're not to go forth and grab them by the arm and twist their arm and then begin to tell them. I gave up door knocking because of that. Peter said, be ready to give answer to those that ask you. And I, I'm ready. I'm willing. And like I said, I never meet a man or come in contact with someone in this world that I don't wonder. Maybe this is a, a guy that's fixing to ask. I'm anxious for their salvation, but maybe they're not. And so don't go bullying people with Christianity. That's not your job. To force it, feed anybody. Wait till they want to feed. <coughs> Wait till they hunger and thirst after righteousness, because that's the only time they'll be filled. Otherwise, it's like a little kid that's, that's not hungry, and you're trying to. Mom's trying to put the food in his mouth, and he keeps yanking away. They don't want it. Well, let's stop right there. Time's up. And I guess we'll begin with verse 2. We didn't get very far, did we? One and a half verses. And this is the third? Yep. Hello, Roger. Oh, 